This is Politics and Media 101. I'm Jeff Browning. Tim Carney is a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and the senior political columnist at the Washington Examiner. He's a close follower of trends within the conservative movement, including what issues motivate conservative voters. Last week, a draft U.S. Supreme Court opinion was leaked, suggesting the court plans to overturn Roe v. Wade. This is a very rare leak from the Supreme Court, and the fact it's on such an important issue that's central to so many people's political thinking makes it even more consequential. We talked to Tim about how he views these events and their potential political impacts. As a reminder, like all of our episodes, this is an edited version of a longer conversation that was taped live with audience questions. For information on how to join us, our upcoming live schedule, and past episodes, please visit our website, pm101.live. Please also take a second to subscribe on whichever streaming service you're using right now so you don't miss our next episode this Wednesday featuring John Ralston of the Nevada Independent. Without any further ado, let's roll the tape. Considering you're a professional in the conservative columnist world, who from the conservative side of things, maybe one or two, would you suggest to the audience if they wanted to, you know, if they're left-leaning and they wanted to hear some of the best arguments that people should read or listen to or what have you? Yes. So two people who like me specifically often write, because I'm I'm often writing for a conservative audience and sometimes for a liberal audience, but Ross Douthat and Megan McArdle always have a liberal audience in mind when they're writing and making their conservative arguments. Ross Douthat at the New York Times, Megan McArdle at the Washington Post. They're both about my age. They're young Gen X, and they're both very intelligent. And they'll, if they're writing about something where you disagree with them, they'll still try to make the argument on terms that can that can persuade you in general. So those are the two, Ross Douthat and Megan McArdle, that I would start with. If I were a liberal looking for an opinion writer on the right who who could, you know, speak to me. We saw the leak of the Alito opinion, draft opinion. We have to highlight draft. Can you get into maybe what the furor and the uproar over this leak is, like the fundamentals behind it? Why is it so disgusting? Why is it so troubling? And why is the right spending so much time on the leak instead of the contents of the opinion? I think we've seen, and a lot of critics of Trump left and right made this point too, that we've seen a breakdown of, of norms and of institutions. And my brand of conservatism really believes in the importance of institutions, that we need communities, we need schools, we need churches, we need government agencies to all kind of stick to what their job is and people to be role players in our society. And that if the Supreme Court particularly needs to be able to deliberate openly and honestly. And so we know that there are draft opinions that somebody puts out and then there's a back and forth and and they've almost never leaked. There's leaks everywhere all the time. As a journalist, I deal with people leaking me stuff, but there's just seemed to be something from the Supreme Court that they can deliberate openly and honestly and then at the end of the day come to what they think is the best decision. If your deliberations are going to be dragged in front of the public, then that takes away the ability of the institution to do this. And then there's also just speculation about the motivations of the leaker. The pro-life side feels like they have been robbed of the chance of victory 
repeatedly over the years where Republican presidents who said they're going to appoint pro-life conservatives, they ended up upholding, you know, you had Kennedy and Souter and O'Connor, these Republican appointees upheld Roe in 1992 and Planned Parenthood v. Casey. And so there's this a idea that like we can always lose no matter how good things look for us. And then B, what if the motive of this leak was to just bring down pressure and threats and that sort of thing, Republican appointed judges. And so right now, what the plan was, and I don't know if it's gone through because I'm not out there, but was to have protests outside homes of Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh tonight. If that was the intention of the leaker, then that just seems really, really disturbing to our ability to have peace. That's just people saying, you rule the way we want to rule, or we're going to disturb your family and make your life hell. That that's, that's why that seems so disturbing, that the other side is going to try to win through pressure and threats. That's uh, the feeling on, on the leak there. Well, Tim, just like you've said, though, it is speculation when we try to consider the motive of the leaker. And there are alternative theories that suggest that perhaps the leaker was actually on the Alito side of the court. And we're hoping to lock in the concurrences of those other justices, people like Kavanaugh, who might be a bit squishy, who might want to take a more moderate approach to the abortion question, like the one that Roberts might be arguing for. And that the motivation by putting the opinion out was to make sure that it was the final one, because after an opinion has been published, the Supreme Court don't want to reveal any more of their internal deliberations. So we'll want to stick by what's been published in this ruling. It is speculation, isn't it, to try to complain about the leak from the perspective of motive when we really have no idea what the motive is. It could be from a completely different perspective than the one you've just suggested. Yeah. And I mean, but you see the problem if it's the let's lock these guys in on the anti-Roe side of it is then what you're doing by publicizing that is you're saying we're going to stop arguing and stop debating. In other words, if you're a justice or a clerk, your job is to win the argument and you're trying to short circuit that debate. If you're an Alito clerk who's saying, I'm going to make sure Gorsuch or Kavanaugh doesn't squish on us by publishing it, that then you're saying, I'm not going to try to do my job. It's like, a baseball team that's up by a couple runs setting off the sprinklers to make the game be called for a count of rain while they're still leading in the seventh inning. And that would be uh, disturbing too. So you're right. We don't know the motivation. I've even seen speculation that it's Alito people who have since lost the majority and are putting out their decision just sort of to spite and to show what would have been the case. Now, again, all of this is guesswork. There's been no reporting that points their finger in anybody's direction. So let's then take motives off the table and let's focus on this institutional question, because I, I think you make a really good point that by revealing the internal deliberations, the leakers intruding on these deliberations and making them more difficult. The Supreme Court institutionally understands that there is a certain level of public interest in trying to figure out the way that the Supreme Court thinks and operates. Looking back on these other historical leaks throughout history, I'm thinking of something like the Pentagon Papers. These certainly revealed how institutions of government were operating, but the Supreme Court and the newspapers in that situation decided that there definitely was a public interest in 
understanding how the Defense Department was conducting the war in Vietnam. By publicizing that information, of course, the New York Times made it harder for the Pentagon to do their job. But the Supreme Court and the New York Times both agreed that the public still had an interest in seeing that. So what do you think about that? How do we find the balance between the institutional need to operate with a level of privacy and the public interest in understanding how the most powerful institutions in our country are actually operating? I I think that's a great question. And uh, one of the things that it makes me think of is the Freedom of Information Act, FOIA. So I've filed dozens, probably about 100 Freedom of Information Act requests. And there's always these exemptions that the government agency will use. I say, give me all your records on X or whatever. And they'll give us a bunch. And then some of the emails will be blanked out. And sometimes it's, you know, this contains trade secrets. Well, you know, GE does some regulatory filing that has secrets. uh, It would hurt them. But a lot of times, one of the biggest (laughs) exemptions they use is this was a deliberative process. And that can drive me crazy because even though they're making the same argument that I just made three minutes ago, I'm thinking, but what I'm trying to get at is how the deliberative process was corrupt. Was the decision-making influenced by a donor, by a job that this one regulator had lined up? Was the process by which the decision was made itself corrupt? is exactly what I'm trying to get at by getting my hands on these records. And there have been times that I've, you know, that we've shown and proved that a contract was given to Boeing so that the, the, the Pentagon contractor could get the job at Boeing. And there was a quid pro quo there. There have been times that it's been proven that a member of Congress gave an earmark to one company who then, you know, their lobbyists then followed him money through corrupt means. And so exactly that process is where we find the corruption. So then I guess the burden would be on me to say, why should the Supreme Court's deliberative process be different from from what's going on in the rest of the government? And maybe it just comes down to, well, these people have lifetime appointments. And if we're going to assume that they have corrupt motives in the way that I'm always trying to sniff out from the executive and the legislative branches at the state and federal level, (laughs) then we're in really bad shape. And maybe we can only function by assuming that they're trying to figure out what the law is or what's best for the country. So there there was a Supreme Court judge historically who was actually impeached of this same kind of corruption that you're demonstrating your interest and curiosity. Samuel Chase, I think it was. I'm just Googling because I know that there was somebody. Yeah, Samuel Chase was his name. So there does need to be transparency in Supreme Court deliberation, right? And we've just seen with this controversy about Justice Thomas and his family that there are perhaps some very important conflicts of interest inside the Supreme Court in regard to issues that they're currently deliberating on. Yeah. And at the same time, I uh, and I, I think it's a, a great debate to have. I think there's a journalistic debate about, you know, receiving the leak. There's an ethical, a lawyerly ethical debate about leaking it. Motives will, at the end of the day, matter. Um, I can't imagine a good motive for leaking this. Even if the effect is something I agree with, even if it was a conservative person who said, we were worried we were going to lose Gorsuch, so we, we leaked this so as to keep him on board, I think that that will be very costly in the long run and would be morally um, morally unethical. 
maybe we will find out more about who leaked it and why, and then we'll revisit that question. But in this case, the motive of the leaker is always going to be relevant. And whether you're described as, you know, a rat or a whistleblower often depends on the judgment by the commentator on what your motives were. And maybe we'll never know. But in this instance, I think it's we can assume that the leak itself corrupted the process. So if we're leaking information to show more transparency to prevent that corruption, maybe, uh, not saying I agree with you, Tim, but maybe in this instance, because the leak itself is actually corrupting the process, it wouldn't make sense to support it. The bombshell of a leak from the Supreme Court, the draft decision on abortion rights, shocked much of the country. It shouldn't have. The crucial vote on the future of Roe v. Wade wasn't cast in the Supreme Court conference room in 2022. It was cast at the polls in 2016 when Donald Trump was elected president. Shortly after Election Day on this broadcast, President-elect Trump told us he would appoint what he called pro-life judges, a promise he made repeatedly during his campaign. Took Mr. Trump one term to keep his promise and add those three votes to the court. Not every political promise is just rhetoric. But moving forward, 2022, 2024, and in the future, do you think that this, the hypothetical overturning of Roe, will have any material benefit for the GOP, the Democrats, or net out at, at zero zero? On the Republican side, the abortion issue has largely delivered votes by motivating voters who might not love a candidate all the way around, but care about that issue. Donald Trump won by such a small margin in 2016 that surely there's a lot of people who are like, I don't know if I love him, but he's he might give us pro-life judges. He says he will. On the Democratic side, the people who are enthusiastic about it are smaller And really, it's about money. The donor base is very involved in the social issues on the Democratic side. So whether it's gay marriage last decade or abortion for the last 30 years, that's a big thing. And already Kamala Harris was raising funds off of this last night. And so there will be a huge flood. I mean, you're you're going to be surprised at how much money is going to pour into the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, Senatorial Campaign Committee the Biden reelect, et cetera, because of this decision and, the, and if it goes the way we think it will and just because of this leaked draft. How will it matter in November? The reason I don't think it will matter that much is that this decision, Dobbs, would put kind of federal jurisprudence, constitutional jurisprudence, at about where the median American voter already is. The most recent poll that I, I just saw that came out today it was YouGov was was the pollster. I forget who the the partner was in this, but it basically said, "Do you think abortion should never be banned? Do you think abortion should be always banned?" And then about three or four in betweens, and you had a clear majority that said, "Yeah, after fifteen weeks, abortion should be illegal." That's where most Americans are. That might not be where most Republican lawmakers are. That might not be the hopes and dreams of some pro-life activists. But that's what the Mississippi law is. And that's where most American voters are. Now, 
how much do American voters care about whether the line is 15 weeks, which this new law in Mississippi does, or 24 weeks, which, you know, the previous laws in a lot of states were. I don't think it's a high priority for most voters. And the activists, which, you know, I count myself as being, you know, if I weren't a journalist, I might be a pro-life activist. Where, where we are is a very small minority of the electorate. About 10 to 20 percent on either side is is really, you know, abortion should happen, should simply be a decision between the, the mother and the doctor or um, abortion is always a taking of an innocent human life. Those positions are not majority positions on either side. So the reason I don't think this will be a big deal is that the Democrats won't want to hammer too hard on Mississippi has now outlawed abortions after 15 weeks, because if they were polled on that question, it seems that most Americans would say, okay, yeah, just don't move it too much earlier. And I don't think Republicans can get a ton out of this. Um, In fact, they might be able to get less of the pro-life support now, because so many pro-lifers who have been voting have been voting to overturn Roe. And if that is mission accomplished, uh, they might not have a lot of ammo left on that. All right, Tim. So I want to ask you next about a column that you wrote on May 2nd, which was about the shape of the culture wars in America and uh, which side is winning, which side is on the front foot, which side's on the back foot, who's on offense, who's on defense, and so on. Part of the reason that there was so much interest in this topic was because of a cartoon that was tweeted out by Elon Musk. He suggested that it was the left that was moving further and more on the front foot in the culture war, and that's left conservatives sort of on the defense, that the overall American political spectrum has moved leftwards. And I think that you, based on your article, generally agree with that assessment. But I would question whether this is overall the case because of some other issues where the country really has moved pretty prominently in the other direction. Two that really come to mind for me are two others that were affected by the Supreme Court. And that's first gun control. After the Heller decision, I think it's really hard to dispute that the U.S. overall body politic has moved significantly rightwards on the gun issue and that the American public have gotten much more accustomed to much more right wing approach to guns. And then another one would be campaign finance. And that's also Supreme Court affected. After the Citizens United decision, we have a completely different campaign finance landscape that is much more in the direction that the right in America preferred and that the rest of the country have gotten accustomed to that. So kind of putting those two examples to you, how do you kind of consider the overall movement of American policy and American discourse? Do you think that perhaps we haven't moved only uniformly in one direction? Well, gun control, to start with that example, I think you need to ask two different questions. One, what is sort of each side calling for? And then the second question would be, are they winning? Gun control in the 90s was Democrats were passing the assault weapon ban and Republicans were arguing for an individual right to bear arms. Today, Democrats are pushing an assault weapon ban and Republicans are arguing for an individual right to bear arms. In certain states, there are legislators who are moving further. The NRA, before it kind of imploded, started 
because it was winning so much at times started trying to push the envelope a little bit further, trying to make it illegal for say a restaurant owner to ban guns, which by the way goes against a lot of other conservative principles. If a, if a property owner says don't bring guns on my land, he obviously has a right to do it. But I think that's a little bit around the edges. What you're pointing out well, is just I, that the, the right was losing on gun control for a while and now they're winning but they are mostly both sides on that issue are mostly staking out the same grounds. Yeah, you've got I, I, some Jim, conservatives pushing stricter for more like uh, more gun freedom, even vis-a-vis private property owners. But then you've got Beto O'Rourke saying, "Yeah, we're going to come and confiscate your guns," which is further left. So I think on that issue, you've had both sides basically say the same. It's just who's winning has been changing. Uh, Tim, I don't, I don't actually agree with that at all. Really, I, I think that. It's not just about who's been winning. It's also about what the different sides are arguing for. I mean, you said so yourself that in the 1990s, there was still a dispute over whether there was an individual right to bear arms in the Constitution. And theoretically, that debate goes on. I have a different perspective about it than the Supreme Court ruled. But in the politic, you know, the political figures who are determining the course of the debate, they have mostly accepted that the Heller decision is going to stand and have moved on. And there's no longer really much argument about the individual right to bear arms, unfortunately. The other thing is about uh, the assault weapons ban and those minute policy issues. I mean, on that front, I think also the left have started to accept more right-wing policy than they might have in the 90s. If we look at what Manchin, Toomey, and some of these other gun control legislation have proposed, they're pushing for stuff that's a lot more modest than they pushed even back when we had an assault weapon ban. So they're looking only at things like background checks. Joe Manchin is not the center of the Democratic Party. (laughs) Um, But these are the only pieces of legislation that were really being seriously considered by the Senate, even when Democrats have majorities, right? I mean, I think if you look at the Democratic Party platform, they still call for an assault weapon ban. So they're in the same place that they were before. I don't think they've moved to the right. And the Republican Party that finally won the individual right to bear arms with the Heller decision had long believed and argued for that. I think gun control might be the best example of where both parties are making basically the same arguments that they were making 30 years ago. The culture war issues that I brought up in that May 2nd article about you know gay marriage or transgender issues are pretty clear to me that the Democrats in it's not that the Republicans were just winning those debates back then. It's that the Democrats were passing the Defense of Marriage Act. The Democrats were arguing for don't ask, don't tell as their idea of what a good compromise was on issues about sexuality that barack obama said i you know i think you should be able to love who you want to love but marriage is between a man and a woman he was saying that in the 2008 election and now uh, <laughs> all of those issues are not just rejected by democrats but but uh blasted as bigotry i don't see gun control as that i just see that who's winning in gun control has moved now maybe and i haven't thought through if we talk about taxes, if we talk about government spending, if we talk about foreign policy, I think on those, you've seen even more interesting movement that might not be straight left or right. But you could convince me that on taxes, the Republican Party has moved to the right, maybe. But I think on anything that touches on culture war, people stay the same or the fight is generally moved to the left. Let's take a look then at what the Supreme Court are currently considering with guns. I mean, it's expected that in this term, they might rule that state and local governments do not have the legal authority to enforce concealed carrying laws. 
Do you think that this is the shape of the argument 20 years ago? Is this what the right was arguing for even 20 years ago? I'm not sure about that. that, Yeah, so that's that's a good question. And that's a historical question that I'm not equipped to ask. And that, and yeah, so I, you, you'd convince me, you would be able to convince me of your argument if you could point out to me that the Republican position was saying it was granting or conceding, hey, um, you know, of course a state could have a concealed carry laws, but they can't outright ban guns. The truth is I'm a guy who grew up in suburban New York and until the big gun control push around 2000. 9 2010 i didn't seat myself that much in the issue and then when it happened i that's when when i started researching it and find it you know close to the heller decision so where republicans were on state level concealed carry laws i think would be a great way to investigate it and i'm afraid john i can't give you the answer as to where they were then so i wanted to get your take on immigration because During the famous now GOP debates all the way back in the 80s with Reagan and Bush, it was who could be more liberal almost on immigration because the paradigm was the fall of the USSR, bringing all of those Eastern Europeans in, hastening the end of that quote unquote evil empire. But all the way up through Bush, even all the way up through 2013, you had a pretty coherent Republican Party policy on uh, legal maybe E-Verify, and and the policy specifics can get their border security, but always increasing legal immigration, always making the system better and easier. And then 2013, you had folks like Ted Cruz completely turn that on the head, rip up the Gang of Eight, which would have increased border security, built part of a wall because they didn't want more legal immigrants. With Trump, you had the refugee numbers being cut drastically. And now you have a strong push within the GOP, a very vocal, I don't even want to call it a vocal minority. You have folks like J.D. Vance just showing outright contempt to any type of legal immigration. So can we agree that the Republican Party has not only pushed to the right on immigration, but moved the conversation to the right on immigration? Yes. And I think that what's happened is this. I always said back before Trump actually shook this up that one of the most interesting dynamics in politics was not a left-right axis, but an elite versus grassroots axis, specifically on the question of nationalism versus internationalism. And this meant immigration, trade, and war, that in both parties— the establishment, the elites, was more likely to support, say, a humanitarian war like Bosnia, Somalia, Libya, or a nation-building ideological war like Iraq. And that was supported by the elites of both parties, while resisted by the sort of the grassroots of public of both parties. And the same was true on trade. Both parties, senators, presidential nominees, Cabinet members were were dedicated to promoting international trade, bringing down tariffs, while the grassroots were saying, let's protect the, the domestic manufacturing. That seems worth protecting. And I think immigration fits into that, that you had Republicans were more likely to be restrictionists, but I think you had voters in both parties that just said, hey, uh, maybe protect the American low-skilled worker from competition, while the elites in both parties either out of sort of an ideological commitment to it, philosophical belief that America's a, a nation of immigrants, or listening to the business lobby saying we need as many 
workers as possible to make labor prices lower. And both parties, the elites were more internationalist, more open borders. And so what happened was finally in the Republican Party, the grassroots won and they dragged the party leadership and, and Trump dragged the party leadership over with them. So again, Rubio was basically fighting for how do we get more people in here while having a little more border enforcement. And that was just absolutely not where the middle of the party was. So that was a case where the party leadership in both parties had been insulated from the public's view. And Trump being a guy who didn't sort of care about the, the niceties of politics or the, or the norms of the establishment kind of smashed through that. So I definitely agree that the, the Republicans have been brought over away from the, you know, the more free, open borders, pro-immigration position. I just want to throw in, I, I think that I'd argue President Biden is pretty far to the right than and maybe more in line with the Bernie Sanders wing of protectionism, anti-immigration than a lot of the, you know, your your regular liberals, your your establishment liberals would want him to be. He only upped the refugee numbers after the progressives twisted his arm. And then in addition to that, well, this is a different point, but the Democratic Party, Nancy Pelosi, has warned the Biden administration they don't have the votes on the Democratic side to lift Title 42. So I think that that's an example of it just shifting a little bit more right every single day. Yes, but and I'll go further, though, and to go back to my broader spectrum of nationalists versus internationalists, I also believe that Donald Trump pulled Biden and the Democrats away from some of their sort of international adventurism on war. I think Trump was broadly on the questions of war where most Americans were, which was, we are not the global policeman, but if you mess with us at all, we're going to bomb the heck out of you. And I think that George W. Bush and Barack Obama and Bill Clinton were more, let's use our unprecedented global power to make the world be a better place. That's what Libya, Iraq, Bosnia, Somalia, etc. all were. And that Trump mostly governed as more of a nationalist on foreign policy. On just the questions of war and peace, and I know this might not be a popular view, I think he actually had some good successes there. I think he sort of chickened out from pulling out of Afghanistan. I think he chickened out of pulling out of Afghanistan because he knew that it was going to go really poorly. But then when Joe Biden did pull out of Afghanistan, it was his acknowledging, you know what, we can't be an empire anymore. So if Biden has become more nationalist on immigration, it's at the same time that he's become more nationalist on foreign policy. And in both of those cases, whether you agree with them or not, I think Biden and Trump brought their respective parties more in line with where the American public was, which was less America has a duty to the whole world and more the U.S. government has a duty to Americans. Tim, I would probably quibble with your characterization of the sequence here, that Biden had been very much influenced by Trump's supposed non-interventionist posture, that Trump had perhaps moved Biden in this direction. I don't know if I really agree with that. I think that we could look at the Obama presidency and certainly see the beginnings of the weariness with the post-9-11 conflicts. We could look at Obama's decision to withdraw American forces from Iraq in 2011 and we could also look at his refusal to enforce the red line that he suggested 
in Syria, and that decision was made in 2013. And there's also contemporary documents and records that show that throughout that period, Biden, at his job in the administration, had been consistently arguing that American troops should be pulled out of Afghanistan as well during this time. So I, I don't really see Trump's influence in this regard. And I think actually what we see with Trump and his approach to intervention, the rhetoric didn't always match the action. I think that this is really more an exhaustion or fatigue with the post 9-11 wars that very much predates Trump. It's probably what propelled Obama to the presidency in 2008, because one of the major distinctions between him and uh, Senator at the time, Clinton, was that she had supported the 2003 Iraq war and he hadn't. Sure. Maybe the my one thing is that Barack Obama did exactly what George Bush did, except while well, George Bush said we're going to do a regime change and then rebuild it, which was a total disaster. Barack Obama said we're going to do a drive-by regime change, and therefore we won't be, you know, uh, we're not going to follow the if you break it, you buy it. We're just going to break it and then let them figure it out. And it was a disaster. And he gets a he gets a free ride on this. But, you know, terrorist groups in northern Africa all flourished after the regime change in the same way that ISIS and Al Qaeda were helped by the regime change in, in Iraq. And it was the same exact mistake, which is shocking precisely because Barack Obama was wise enough to oppose the Iraq war when when that happened. So I mean, yeah, I you know, if you're going to say I gave Trump too much credit, fine. And I think Obama did learn the lesson from Libya that he should have learned from Iraq. And that's why he didn't do the regime change in Syria. But if you remember it, he wanted to do the regime change in Syria after the red line. And we were basically probably 48 hours away from doing a, you know, Iraq war 2.0. And he got talked out of it. Where was Joe Biden on all of this? That's a really interesting question. I mean, I watched him on the Foreign Relations Committee in the Senate going back to 2000, and he would pop all over the place. I do remember after I was in the Senate, uh, right outside of the, the House chamber after the State of the Union, where George W. Bush laid out the Axis of Evil speech, and Biden, in his typical way, was just like, that made no sense. How <laughs> are Iran, Iraq, and North Korea an axis of anything? That, that, that's totally nonsensical. And so at times, Biden really has shown sense, but he supported the Iraq war. He's a generally has a pro-war record, whether it's Bosnia, Serbia, etc. And within the Obama White House, was he a force against intervention? I've, I've heard that. I've never confirmed, but I've heard that. And so, yeah, but in general, what I think you'll agree with me on, John, is that both Biden and Trump represent the establishment of both parties marching away from this sort of post-Cold War idea of U.S. being uh, a benign empire and towards more of a, we're going to be a little more humble foreign policy. Yeah, I mean, I certainly do agree with you that the recognition of American limits and the balance of power globally definitely has shifted. Um, I still disagree a little bit with your characterization of the Obama years. I don't know if I agree that he really intended to ever use American force directly in Syria in the way that you suggested. And also the Libya story is a bit complicated. I think that your characterization of it as drive-by regime change is accurate, but the sequence of decision-making and the impulses of the different leadership figures is a little bit complex. Uh, I, it seems to me, based on my reading of the events, that the Obama decision to partake was really kind of reluctantly forced by his 
knowledge that the French and British were going to go ahead and do it anyway. And throughout, he was insisting not to commit American forces directly to the ground, which led to a very poor handling of the situation for all the reasons that you identify. But I think that the way that he approached that situation did itself also reflect their reluctance to get involved in more Iraqs and Afghanistan. It led to probably an even worse outcome. I think that it still reflected that kind of influence to move America in the other direction against more direct kinds of involvement. Certainly, it was, I mean, the half of the lesson from Iraq, which was nation building to build a liberal democracy in a country that doesn't have a history of it is not going to go well. That was a part he followed. But the regime change will create a vacuum that will then create a nest of terrorism was the part that he thought he could somehow avoid, in my opinion. You trace it to, you know, uh, France, NATO. I trace it to Samantha Power and Susan Rice, who were very, very affected by the, the U.S. is not getting involved to stop the Rwandan genocide. And that those two sort of saw, to quote Uncle Ben from Spider-Man, uh, that with great power comes great responsibility, that those two really had an ideological conviction that the U.S. had the power to prevent whatever bad things Gaddafi was going to do, and so had the obligation to do it. And that that was the same mindset, in my view, that the uh, Bush administration followed in why they did their regime change in Iraq. And Tim, don't forget Secretary of State Clinton. Right, who was yes, twisting. Absolutely. <laughs> Half of my work at the RNC during the 2016 campaign was to tie Libya to Clinton. And it was pretty easy to do with all the quotes in the New York Times, with everything that you just said. But I think uh, it shows that foreign policy is complex. And I think we're splitting hairs here. And we all ultimately agree Obama did go in and intervene in Libya and probably shouldn't have. So let's quickly go to some audience questions. We will start with Megan Stringer who is a former Republican staffer like myself. She's still a conservative, unlike me, who I guess you could say is, was a rhino. But Megan, we'll go to you. Megan, over to you. You're definitely a rhino, or you were. I was a rhino, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much, Justin and Tim, for joining us. I'd be really interested to hear, you know, your You've, you've been in Washington, I think you said, or have been following politics pretty closely for 20 years. And would be interested to hear your takes on bipartisanship, on the willingness of parties to work together, and the ways that you have seen that improve, disintegrate, stay the same, or just change the way it looks in the last 20 or so years. Yeah, so I think that's a great question. I think it sometimes gets treated simplistically as people are more partisan or more polarized now. The sort of two people I turn to for wisdom on this, my old boss, the late great columnist Bob Novak, and my current boss at AEI, Yuval Levin. What Novak said was, he said, I just think that politicians have always thought that their job was getting reelected, and unfortunately they've gotten better at that job. <laughs> it's just a cynical way of looking at it, but that sort of part of the insight of, of Mitch McConnell and Harry Reid and Chuck Schumer was that playing ball with the other side at all is harmful to your ability to take back power. If you're the minority and you help the majority make a bill become better, 
well, you just reduce the odds that you're going to be able to take over the majority. If you're out of power in the White House and you help the president make a bill better by bringing it closer to your side, which would mean closer to the middle, you're helping that party stay in power. So that combines with Yuval Levin's observation, which is how do these guys see what they're doing in, say, the U.S. Senate? Do they say, I have a role, so what's the proper course of action? My role is to create laws, to, you know, authorize war, to do this. Or do they say, ah, now that I'm in the U.S. Senate, I have a great platform to advance myself, whether to become a lobbyist, whether to become a Fox or MSNBC contributor, whether to write a book or whether to run for president. Is the Senate a place to pass laws or a platform to advance yourself? So if you combine the sort of added insight, hey, being oppositional actually helps us better than trying to improve the other side's legislation with the increased number of politicians who are just seeing it as a platform, you have almost no incentive to work together. Because what would bipartisanship be? It would be, okay, these guys are going to pass something. Let me try to make it be less bad and put in some good stuff. That incentive just isn't there like it was when I first came to Washington in 2000. And by 2000, Novak was saying it was much less the case than it had been in the 1980s. Peter, over to you. Thanks so much, Tim. One hot button discussion, you know, in politics right now is free speech slash the First Amendment. Can you tell me in terms of government regulating speech and especially retaliating against companies, can you explain like how a conservative would be in favor of Florida weaponizing taxation against a public company in terms of lobbying? Like what is the limit when it comes to government interfering in political speech? I mean, so this is such a dizzying issue because... First of all, I mean, earlier, and I didn't address it, but the idea of Citizens United was brought up. And I remember when the central issue for the Democrats was corporations should not be getting involved in politics. Political speech by corporations is undermining our constitutional republic. And I was at that point saying, I don't think I agree with the Democrats, but I hope the conservatives realize that corporations are not going to be our friends. They're not socially conservatives. They're not fiscally conservatives. And they, they don't want low tax rates. They want high tax rates with tons of tax breaks just for that, which brings us to Disney. I'm here saying all of Disney's special privileges should have been repealed long ago. Doing it now because they're speaking out against the governor rubs me a little bit the wrong way. But then it was when the lieutenant governor came out and said, oh, yeah, we could probably give them all this stuff back if they just stop being so woke and just shut up about politics. That's when it went from like, this rubs me the wrong way to this is actually corrupt. This is the way I would put it is not it's bad to take away Disney's tax breaks for siding with the Democrats. What they were really doing is they were offering tax breaks if Disney would shut up. And that, that, that was definitely corrupt in my mind. But on the other hand, if Every Republican legislature just said, we're sick of these corporations undermining us. We are going to treat these big businesses equal and take away all their subsidies. I'd have to be like, well, politics is the art of getting politicians to do the right things for maybe the wrong reasons. And and so the, the thing should be stripped. So this is all my way of saying, obviously, yeah, Ron DeSantis is playing hardball politics, but trying to get 
corporations have less influence over our laws used to be the <laughs> the mission of the Democratic Party and taking away special favors from big corporations should be what both parties are doing all the time. I loved how you put that, Tim, because uh, corporations aren't in favor of free markets. They're in favor of regulations that benefit them to limit competition or handouts, quite frankly. Yeah, you're, right? not, you're, not, you're not a rhino after all. <laughs> I worked for <laughs> I worked for uh, uh, Tim Hulescamp, who uh, kind of beat that into my head. So I think we agree there on the, on the, a lot of these subsidies things. Um, so let's just go to one or two more. Kelly, do you have a question? If not, we'll go to Aram. Kelly, over to you. I do. Uh, probably a quick one. I'm curious, Tim, if you think that messaging during this campaign, because of social media and kind of the like extreme polarity and vitriol we see, will have any kind of an impact specifically to abortion. There's a lot of messaging that like men should not have a say-so in abortion, that this is a woman's issue. And since you've already kind of pointed to to where you sit on this, and and I think that this is something that that truly matters to you, what is your answer to statements like that, A and B, do you think any of this really matters? So social media, I think, mostly matters in how it shapes. Well, so Twitter mostly matters in that how it shapes what questions journalists ask. So Twitter only matters to the extent that the media matters, because Twitter is mostly a place where very, very online political people and a bunch of journalists get together doesn't do an amazing job of moving moving public opinion. Uh, Facebook, and then all the apps that the young people move, I don't have as much insight on how they matter. But specifically, so like, in what ways does my opinion matter? Does my expressing my opinion on social media matter, etc.? One way I look at it, I had an old boss, Terry Jeffrey was his name, and my job was to like field the emails that just went to the website and he came back from being on msnbc he said hey did we get any emails and one of them said you're never going to persuade anybody and he said oh tim i'm not trying to change people's minds when msnbc has me on to talk about abortion i'm trying to make sure that some of the viewers out there who might think they're the only people who believe this realize that they're not totally alone and so sometimes what what I'm doing or what another commentator is doing is just we say something true that we believe is true because it's important to speak the truth. <laughs> and if, if somebody's going to say, I'm not going to be persuaded by some Catholic conservative white dude talking about abortion, just me saying it, especially if I say it well, I think has value. I think Twitter on abortion is the issue and the place where you're least likely to have any persuasion going on. They're so far apart. It's so, uh, uh, the only reason I'm even posting is either A, because I just say it's important to say something true, or B, Twitter has this addictive pull on me and I post things when I probably should just keep my mouth shut. Aram, over to you for the last question. Thanks, Justin. Appreciate it. And thanks for being here, Tim. Um, I wanted to ask just about, you know, this J.D. Vance ad that opens with, do you hate Mexicans, which is, at the most charitable interpretation is a highly insensitive troll. And I think indicative of the kind of race to the bottom, which we seem to talk about every single cycle. We just keep finding new bottoms. And I'm wondering what you think is, does it indicate something? And especially coming from someone at AEI, which has somehow kind of managed to slip by in some sort of neutral space on the right where it's sort of 
not never Trumpers, not totally pro Trump, but kind of somehow navigating in some sort of liminal space. Yeah, I mean, first on that last point, I never voted for him. I opposed him explicitly in the primaries, but when he did good things as president, I praised him. So I think that you accurately described where I am and where most of my AI colleagues are. One of my arguments against Trump was based on the idea that that comes from Augustine and Aquinas, that sort of our our leaders, our government, our statesmen shape us. They They change who we are. And also my belief that everybody is a little bit racist. I think there was a great song once on a comedy sketch. Everybody's a little bit racist. And, and, and it's what I believe. I don't believe, you know, racism is a black or white switch. I mean, I guess that's the wrong metaphor to use. I don't think racism is an on or off power switch. I think it, it exists in everybody. And so combine those two facts. And one of the things I was worried about with Trump is that he would make Republicans a little more racist. and I think it happened. And so one of the things you can do as a leader is you just following the crowd is never quite just following the crowd. It's sort of taking the crowd with you somewhere either better or worse. I think one of the great things about Ronald Reagan is that he regularly tried to take his party with him and the American public, including the independents who supported him, towards somewhere better, somewhere more optimistic, somewhere more open. I think what Trump showed is how it can be easier to take people somewhere worse. And I think a good part of what you saw in that Ohio Senate race was a competition to see who could say, hey, who's going who's gonna to come with me to the, the worst, easiest place that'll make you more certain of your own virtue. And obviously, I don't think that's good for the republic. That concludes our conversation for today. Again, huge thanks to Tim Carney and the Washington Examiner, to our audience for their questions, and most importantly, to you for being here. As a reminder, like all of our episodes, this is an edited version of a longer conversation that was taped live with audience questions. For information on how to join us and past episodes, please visit our website, pm101.live. Please also take a second to subscribe on whichever streaming service you're using right now so you don't miss our next episode this Wednesday featuring John Ralston of the Nevada Independent. This has been Politics and Media 101, produced in partnership with Clubhouse. Wherever you are in the world, thank you for being a part of this community. I'm Jeff Browning. On behalf of Justin Higgins and John Gunnison, our co-founders, we hope to hear from you soon.